Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Brave Church Podcast, and thanks for listening. At the end of this talk, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook or Instagram, where you can get even more connected to what's going on in our community. But most importantly, we hope the following talk inspires you to take your next step in finding or following Jesus. Today, we are continuing in our series, Love Story, going through the book of Ruth. And we're in chapter three. If you didn't get notes, raise your hand. Our ushers will get those to you, and you can follow along. Or you can go in your Bibles to Ruth chapter three. And we're going to approach things a little differently today. Uh, Normally, we read our passage, and then we go right into it. But we're going to read our passage a little more slowly, take our time, because there are a lot of cultural differences between way back in Ruth's time and our time. And so we want to make sure that we're really understanding what's going on so that we can apply this well. There's just a lot of symbolism and cultural nuances. And so here's what we're going to do. Let me give you a brief overview of the three different scenes. So Ruth is divided into four acts, kind of like a play. And each act contains various scenes. And so in this act, act three, there's three scenes. The first is a short introductory scene that takes place at the home of Naomi during the day. Naomi's discussing a plan that she has for Ruth and Boaz. Then in scene two, it's a lengthy scene that takes place at the threshing floor later that evening. And Ruth, she's executing the plan. She's going for it. And then scene three is a short concluding scene that takes place at the home of Naomi, where they're debriefing and wondering, what is Boaz going to do next? Okay, so let's begin verse one. It says, one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Naomi's proposal is given in the form of a pair of negative questions that are actually making two strong affirmations. The first question states the problem. The second, the solution. She says, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? The Hebrew word used for home is Manoah. And this is a place of tranquility and repose. So Israelite women found this. They experienced this through marriage. Verse 2, now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Translation, he will be alone, and the circumstances will be perfect for you to seduce him. (laughs) But seriously, she wanted a marriage proposal. Okay, so let's continue. Verse 3, here's Naomi's plan. She says, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. If you're a guy and your girlfriend has been pressuring you for a proposal, you're going to want to turn to her right now and say, don't get any ideas, okay? Naomi's plan here is risky. It's fragile. She's instructing Ruth to do three things. She says, bathe, put on perfumed oil, and put on your best dress. Uh, A number of commentators interpret Naomi's instructions to be like a bride's preparation for their wedding day. She's getting ready for marriage. So the most likely explanation of this is she's wanting to make it really clear. They're wanting to make it really clear to Boaz that her season of mourning is done. Remember, Ruth is a widow, and so her season of mourning is over. She's coming back to the normal things of life, which would include marriage, and she's ready. 
So Naomi also gives further instruction on what to do when she gets to the threshing floor. The first thing she says is, don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. Naomi's probably thinking, hey, let's make sure the mood's right. He's going to be receptive. This is really important, especially on date night. Am I right, ladies? Okay, you guys shower up? Just kidding. (laughs) So then she says, When he lies down, Ruth is to go uncover his feet, lie down close beside him. And it was probably not just at his feet. It was actually more beside him like a married couple. So this is where we have a lot of sexual tension. You guys picking up on that? Um, This is just real. It's raw. This is what's happening. They were probably at a minimum very, very excited. But what happens next is nothing like what we would expect in our culture. If it's our culture, we probably all go, okay, I know what happens after this. But no, she uncovers his legs. This is symbolic. She's uncovering his legs, giving a nonverbal symbol, requesting marriage. Way more than a one-night stand. Am I right? So what does Ruth think of this plan? Verse 5, she says, I'll do whatever you say. She's all in. But remember... Things could go wrong. This, this was not a safe plan, okay? There was a lot of risk. First of all, Boaz could go, oh, you're, you're just trying to marry me for my money? Or you're a foreign widow, you're a Moabite, you're just trying to move up in social standing, up the social ladder, you just want to be more respected? Or worst of all, worst of all she, he could have taken advantage of her sexually, humiliated her, and told everyone that she was like a prostitute or just trying to sleep around. But Ruth responds, and she says, I'll do whatever you say, which demonstrates her radical commitment and trust to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's followed her this far. Now she has a plan, and she says, yeah, I'll do whatever you ask. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet and lying down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This section of the scene is where Ruth is verbalizing her desire for marriage, but the writer introduces this dialogue through the perspective of Boaz. He, he's lying there, he's eating, he's drinking, he's going to bed, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's a woman lying next to him. Like, would you guys be shocked or what? I mean, that'd be crazy. It happens every night. Uh, so then Ruth makes her intentions known. And Boaz responds, and this is what he says. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing, hold it out. 
And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle under her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Boaz wanted her mother-in-law to know that he was serious. And so he sent her back with his barley as a symbol of his intentions, but also an action. And so then Naomi, she says, wait, my daughter, until you find out What happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So now they wait patiently, expectantly for blessing and kindness. Today's talk is titled Big Decisions. And I want to talk to you about four questions to ask when making a big decision. Um, Sometimes... There are different ways to teach or approach a passage when we're teaching from scripture. Sometimes there are different ways that God wants to emphasize things for our lives. Now, there are wrong ways, but there are often many right ways. And so one of the most important things that we do when we're teaching God's word is we stop and we go, God, what is it from this passage that you want to say to our community for right now? What is it that you want to emphasize? What is it that we need to hear? And so as I was doing that this week, I really felt impressed on the topic of big decisions. And then throughout the week, there were all these meetings that I had that had been scheduled from a week or even two weeks before. And there was just this common thread of so many people that were processing big decisions. And that's one of the ways that God confirms things. And so there's a lot of big decisions in this little book of Ruth. So many big decisions are being made. And biblical wisdom for decision-making is one of the most valuable things that we can get. Because the decisions we make literally impact the kind of life we end up living, especially the big ones. So some of the decisions that I've been coming across and some of the decisions that you might be making right now, it could be where to live. It could be where to work. Do I keep this job? Or do I apply for this other one? Do I stay here and make it work? Or do we move somewhere cheaper? Should I go to this church or that church? Should I marry this person, date this person, break up with this person? Should we have one or two kids, three or four kids? Should we adopt? Big decisions are big decisions because they don't just impact our lives. They impact the lives of the people around us. But listen, even if you aren't facing a big decision right now, It is only a matter of time because life is full of them and we're always coming up on new ones. And so what I hope is that these questions that you're writing down and that we're talking about today, I'm hoping that they'll be a guide, even something that you can reference as you come up on future decisions. And for some of you, you may be here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And we love that you're here, that you're exploring faith with us. That may be the big decision that you're processing. For others, You may be convinced that God is real, that he exists, but you haven't yet made the decision to come under his lordship, to live life his way, to follow him, and that's a big decision. And it's a big decision because change can be uncomfortable. Big decisions always lead to changes. And so as stressful as some of these decisions might be, what we need to understand is that God loves big decisions. He often uses them as catalysts for change, changes that we desperately need in our lives to make room for more of the work he wants to do within us. So the story of Ruth is full of big decisions. Leaving your homeland was a big decision. 
going out into the field, searching for favor, hoping that God will provide in a dangerous territory, that's a big decision. Offering a risky plan to get your daughter-in-law hitched, that's a big decision. A poor foreign widow asks a wealthy man to marry her, big decision. Agreeing to attempt to marry this poor foreign widow, big decision. At every decision point, things could have gone badly. Things could have taken a turn for the worse. But somehow, have you noticed this? Somehow, each one of these characters throughout this story, they seem to make big decisions with clarity, decisively, and with confidence that God is with them. They're full of faith that God will help them. So how do they know that they can trust God? And how do they know that he's with them? Why are they so confident? This is my hope for all of you today, that as we go through these questions and as we process this together, that, that you would have a system in your life that you can go to, questions that you can ask in prayer that can help give you the confidence, the same confidence that we see them going through in all of these risky decisions that you're moving forward with God. Because there is nothing like knowing that your heart and your will is in alignment with God as you make a big decision. So here's the first question. You guys ready for this? All right, question one. Do I have a selfless burden? Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I found in most big decisions that there's an element of sacrifice or letting go. Because big decisions, they point to, they prove, they reinforce what we love most. And I, I really need you to hear something. It's really important as followers of Jesus that we know this, that, that when you're facing a big decision, if the outcome is only for you, if you're the only one who wins in the outcome of this decision, it's probably not the God thing to do. I've just seen way too many families, friendships, partnerships, marriages torn apart because at the end of the day, one person is being really selfish. So let's take a cue from Naomi. Naomi had a big decision to make. Would she suggest a plan that put her livelihood at risk for the benefit of her daughter-in-law? She would. She leaned into it. She leaned into a decision that had the opportunity to take care of Ruth far beyond her. See, the thing is, Ruth was a foreign widow. She was a Moabite. So it was one thing for her to be in this land with Naomi but her future beyond Naomi's lifetime was very uncertain. The easy route for Naomi would have been to just enjoy life, enjoy her final years, coast through. Boaz was providing. They had enough. But she risked messing up a really good thing. Have you ever been at a place for you and your family where you were at a good place, God was providing, life was comfortable, but maybe God was calling you to something different? for others, and it actually wasn't for you, and maybe it felt like a huge risk. Maybe some of you are in that place right now, or maybe some of you can look back on decision points in your past. When you have a burden for someone, something, a people, God leads through these burdens. We have to listen to them. Maybe it's risky. Let's face it, Naomi, she could have been a total mooch, right? And she could have felt entitled, too, because she'd been through a lot. She'd lost a lot. She could have felt like, you know what? My life should be easy now. God's provided, and I'm just going to stay at this comfortable place. 
But check this out. Despite all of Naomi's hardships, she was still a woman of faith. If this plan failed, she would have been at a bad place, but she loved Ruth and she trusted God. There are people in our lives that need encouragement, that need support. See, sometimes God uses us to help others create a plan for their benefit, for their future. Maybe you see things in some of the people around you that they don't recognize or believe about themselves. Maybe they lack confidence or maybe they lack some bravery and they need to be encouraged, given courage. Are we looking around us? Are we aware, like Naomi, are we looking for the Ruths and the people that maybe we'd even go out on a limb for? Sometimes the decision we need to make is to empower someone else's dream. Sometimes that's the hardest decision to make. Is there someone in your life that needs you to see the dream and the burden that God has given them and to encourage them, to get behind them, to give them a plan, to dream with them? What is God asking of you? Maybe there's a wise person or someone God, he's put in a position of authority in your life that sees potential in you that you don't see. Maybe there's an opportunity that you need to decide on. Ask yourself, how will this help others? How does this connect to the burden that God has given me for his other sons and daughters? So the first question is, do I have a selfless burden? And the second question is, are my motives in alignment with God's value system? Are my motives in alignment with God's value system? Proverbs 16.2, it says, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. <clears throat> Does this decision fit within the unchanging character of God as seen throughout the Bible. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to spend time in God's word daily, to read it, to learn about who God is, his character, what's important to him, what he values, his mission. It's how we get a clearer picture of who God really is. And the great thing about the church is you don't have to know everything and you don't have to have everything figured out, but there are probably people around you as you get into community that have spent more time in scripture than you or been following Jesus longer than you. And you can go to them and say, hey, I'm trying to process this, but I wanna make sure it's in line with God's values. Can you point me to some scripture, some stories, some passages, things that have helped you or you think would help me in a situation like this. Naomi was a leader in Ruth's life. She had her mother-in-law and she respect, Ruth had her mother-in-law and she respected her. And as far as we know, everything Ruth knew about God, she learned from Naomi. We also know that Naomi was a woman of integrity. And I think that Ruth knew this and I think Ruth probably learned more from how Naomi handled the disappointments of life than even the scriptures that she shared with her. Because she watched her live out a real faith. And that made her a person that she could trust with big decisions, that she could turn to, that she could get advice from, that she could receive direction. She gave her a plan because she saw that she had backed it up with her life, that her faith was real. That's a brave woman. And that's a value system uh, that is so counterculture to what we see. See, our culture says, do what makes you feel good. But God's value system says, faithfulness over feelings wins every single time. Our faithfulness matters. This line of thinking, it might even seem strange to some, even some who have been 
coming to church or going to church for a long time, maybe even grew up in church because the American church has gotten so carried away with how we preach grace, in some senses, we've lost the true meaning of grace. Grace should never lead us to a place where how we live our lives matters less. God cares about the decisions we make. So so please hear me because I want to be really clear on this. Our works can never earn salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's a choice that we all can freely make. It's something that God desires for every single person. But we need to know something. Having our fate sealed for eternity doesn't mean that God has a low standard for how we live today. Faithfulness today affects some of the plans that God has for our future. Look at some of these biblical characters. Moses, great leader, led God's people out of Egypt into the wilderness. They were on their way to the promised land. But because he didn't trust God in a crucial moment later in life, he never got to enter into the promised land with them. He didn't get to lead God's people into that place. Samson was a mighty warrior, the strongest man who ever lived. And he was appointed as a judge. He was appointed to care for God's people, to protect them. But because he gave in to lust and he wasn't loyal to Yahweh, he ended up dying with the Philistines, the very people that he was charged to protect Israel from. King David, he had a great vision that God gave him, a dream to build the temple But because he knocked up a married woman, had the guy killed in battle, he never got to see the completion of that temple. His son built it instead. I think one of the greatest lies that the evil one has has caused us, one of the greatest deceptions that the evil one has caused us to fall into in, in, in our Western Christianity is that grace is so good that our actions don't matter. God is looking for people whose hearts will be fully his. He's not looking for perfect people. This doesn't mean that if you uh, ran a red light on the way here, if you, you know, told a lie, I don't know what you guys do, but this is not about perfection. That's not my point, okay? The point is that when God invites us to come and follow him, he expects us to commit to a lifetime of following And that is an ever-changing thing. Are we more like Jesus today than we were a year ago, right? And if you can't say that you are, then that means at some point you started making decisions on your own. And Jesus wants to make these decisions with you. And that's what it means for him to be Lord of your life. The character that Ruth and Boaz display in the story, it's amazing. There's a word we talked about a few weeks ago, hesed. It's a Hebrew word for kindness and mercy, They were kind and merciful. What does God's value system look like? In short, it looks like love. God's value system is built on love. God is love. And Paul describes a value system built on love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. It's a famous passage. It's read at a lot of weddings. But we're going to look at it today, and it's in your notes. And as I read it, I want you to circle any of these descriptors of love that stand out to you that you go, oh, I I could work on that one. I I could use some more of that kind of love. Um, Love is patient. I just circled that. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. This is a great passage to meditate on when you're making a big decision, circling what stands out to you, reflecting on it, because you want to know if you're in line with God's values, in line with the things he cares about, and love is the measuring stick. If you can say that your motives are in alignment with this kind of love, you're probably headed in a good direction. So let's review. When facing a big decision, do I have a selfless burden? Are my motives in alignment with God's value system? And another question to ask, and this question is directed to God. God, is there anything I'm not seeing that needs to be brought to light? Is there anything I'm not seeing that's unseen that needs to be brought to light? 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul reminds believers that when Jesus returns, he'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. In the end, everything will be seen for what it is. Motives will be seen for what they are. Agendas will be seen for what they are. Evil will be seen for what it is. So we need to ask God, especially when we're making big decisions, because these decisions impact our future. They impact so much. There's a trickle effect whenever we're making a big decision. So it's a matter of spiritual warfare. And so we need to ask God, hey, is there anything I'm not seeing in this situation with this person or whatever that might look like? Because the spirit of God wants to inform you. The spirit of God wants to speak to you, wants to give you discernment, wants to give you a sense about what you don't know. Uh, I've experienced this many times over the years. Being a pastor is likened to being a shepherd in the Bible. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the ultimate shepherd. And we are under shepherds, under Jesus, caring for his flock. And so shepherds, they guide, they protect, they care for the flock. But one of the things it talks about um, in, the, in the Bible is that there are wolves that can come into the flock disguised as sheep. These are often coming in through the form of friends or whatever that might look like. And just to be clear, don't get paranoid. I'm not saying everybody's a wolf, so don't go there. Um, but there are people that come into situations with wrong motives that are not for good. And we need to be aware and we need to pray for discernment because I've noticed, especially when making big decisions, this is a time that the enemy would love to confuse us or cause us to go in a different direction. So we've got to spend time in prayer and we need to ask God to give us a sense about what we do not see. Uh, for me, this has often felt like a sense of danger or concern or, or a troubledness. Um, if you don't feel safe around someone or you're just not sure if you can trust them, it's either God highlighting something for you or you just need to have a conversation with them. Like I said, everybody, um, there's, there, there really aren't that many wolves, I don't think, around us. But, um, but we want to pray and we want to be aware. I, I have a story. It's kind of an extreme example. So um, just forewarning you, but when, when we moved up here to start this church, uh, I was praying about it, and I asked a few friends to come, too. I was in Southern California, and I asked a few friends from college to come, too. Well, when I left for college, my mom cried because she thought I was never going to live at home again. And then when I came back with friends from college, she cried again. <laughs> but we're all living in this house together, and it's an adventure, and it's so exciting. But one of my friends, he was a good friend. We'd spent a lot of time together in college. Huge personality, super fun to be around. But we were you know, doing this thing, and we were here at the church, 
and this, this anger came out of him, and he took it out on a student in a really inappropriate way. And so we had a conversation with him, and we said, hey, we love you, but, but we think that you need to take a break from being in leadership because that, that's not OK. And there's clearly some deeper stuff going on. And so we had prayed about it, and we said, hey, we want to sponsor some counseling to help you work through this stuff. But unfortunately, he was just too prideful. So instead, what he did is he called another mutual friend of ours who's pastoring in Southern California, and he asked if he could go on staff at his church. And he told him just a completely different story of, of what had happened and you know, a whole different narrative, of course. And so he went on staff at this church. And then a lot of the same things started happening, but then it, it escalated worse and worse. There's a lot going on that nobody knew about until some charges were brought against him that were very serious. And at this time, he's spiraling out of control. He's doing a lot of drugs. He's drinking excessively. And it just got worse and worse. And the, then one night, he didn't want his mom to know. He was ashamed that she would find out about these charges, didn't know what was going to happen. And so he decided to take a gun and shoot her. Now, fortunately, she survived, but he's in prison. We prayed, and God gave us discernment when we saw values being violated, and we got a sense that there was way more below the surface, that this was way deeper than we might have thought. And nobody would have seen this coming. Nobody would have ever guessed in a million years. Now, I know this is an extreme example, but it's also extreme when a marriage is torn apart. It's also extreme when you accept a job that you really weren't supposed to accept and your whole life goes down a different path. It's also an extreme when we give in to greed. It's, an, it's extreme when, when we walk away from Jesus and don't even realize we're doing it because we've been deceived. So we need to pray and we need to invite God into these big decisions to give us a sense about what is unseen. The last question, question four, if this plan is successful, does it further my agenda or God's? First Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, it says, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. How does this plan further God's mission in the world? How does, it, how does this decision further his mission in the world? How does it honor him? How does it help others more than it helps ourselves? Ruth honored all parties involved as she executed this plan. She honored Boaz. She honored Naomi. And as a result, everyone benefited. Everyone won. And it wasn't just about what she could get. I mean, think about it. She had so much to gain if this went well. But she actually loved Boaz. She actually loved him. It wasn't about all the stuff. It wasn't about just the protection, just the provision, uh, just pleasing her mother-in-law. She actually loved him, and God honored that. And you know what's incredible? Is their union led to the bloodline that led to Jesus. Everyone was blessed through this. Love always acts in a way that honors others, that adds value to one another. So what does love require of you? Do I have a selfless burden? Are my motives in alignment with God's value system? God, is there anything I'm not seeing that needs to be brought to light? And if this plan is successful, does it further my agenda 
or God's. One of the biggest decision points that I remember when I was younger, when I was 20, was what to do next after I had finished community college. I was serving in our church, and I just didn't know right when I graduated high school where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. So I did that for a few years, and I I knew that I was called to ministry, but I really wasn't sure what God wanted me to do next. And I remember feeling the weight of this decision like it was a huge burden because I felt like if I didn't choose the right thing, it was just going to mess up my life. And so I was praying about it, and the options that I kind of weighed was staying put, which was the least attractive, or doing a ministry internship in another country, going to school for business. I was passionate about business, or going to Bible college in Southern California. So I was praying about all these options, and they were all different. And I really wasn't sure what to do, but I remember this one day as I was praying, uh, you know, and I'm feeling this, this weightiness, this burden, and then all of a sudden I felt peace, and I felt like God just gave me this one word, which was freedom. And it was as if he was saying, you, you choose on this one. It's okay. It, it was as if he was saying, hey, you know, you're going to make your decision, and, and I am with you, but at the end of the day, you're still going to end up where I want you to be, because God's pretty good at getting us where he wants us to be. And so I, I fully believe that I chose any of those options, I'd still be standing here today. And so sometimes when we're facing a big decision, it's as if God gives us freedom and says, hey, all of these things are good. You can choose and you don't need to worry about whether or not you're going to end up where I want you. But then other times there are decisions that we face that are a matter of obedience. God's given us a specific burden. He's leading us to a specific place. He's opened a specific door. And so what we need to be ready for in all of these instances is to take faithful action. See, Naomi, she had faith, but she took action. She had a plan. She wasn't passive. She had a plan, and they went for it. And look what God did. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be ready to walk through the door. We need to be ready to say yes. We need to be ready to go all in. No matter how scary that might be, no matter how many risks, you know, if if you're like me, you just weigh all the pros and cons and that can, that can kind of really mix us up sometimes, right? Sometimes we just need to erase the whiteboard and pray. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what decisions that you might be facing. Maybe your biggest decision right now is to follow Jesus. In fact, you know what? If you bow your heads, let's pray for that right now. If there's anyone here, if you could bow your heads, close your eyes. If there's anyone here that would like to make the decision to follow Jesus, I just want you to raise your hand so that I can pray with you. That's awesome. That is awesome. I'm going to pray this prayer, and I want you to agree with it in your heart. God, today I make you Lord of my life. You're my Savior. You're my healer. You're my Redeemer. But you are also my leader, and I am ready to follow you, to follow you along this journey, to make decisions with you, not apart from you, to be with you, to find my greatest joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In a few minutes, we're going to receive communion. And so for those of you that are processing other decisions, other things that, that, that you're thinking through and, and trying to decide on, um, as we go to communion, this is a ritual that Jesus initiated at the start of the church. He initiated it the day before he went to the cross. And that was a big decision. And so we can take comfort in knowing that 
the same Savior who made a huge decision for us that went through so much more than we can imagine in terms of pain and hardship, taking on all of our sins. If he did that for us and he's with us in the decisions that we're making, then we're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. But we have to involve him. And so as we come forward for communion, let's make this a moment where we involve Jesus, where we fully surrender with hands open and say, Jesus, show me the way. Show me the truth. Show me the light. Show me what it is that you would have me do. And I commit to taking action you know, and obediently following whatever that is. Let this be a moment between you and Jesus. So you can stand, you can sit. We're gonna sing another song. The band's gonna lead us into a time of worship. But come forward whenever you're ready to these communion stations and receive. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Bay Area, we would love for you to join us at a Sunday gathering in San Ramon. For directions, gathering times, or information about our Brave Kids program, visit us at brave.church. Also, if you want to help support what God is doing through Brave, you can give online to the Brave Foundation at brave.church forward slash foundation.